fact, uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, maybe by next Sunday, but probably not, but in the next couple of weeks, we will have a, uh, a cry room back in the foyer. It's the, the first classroom on the left when you come in the door. Uh, we'll have a, a TV up so that you can see and hear the service. There are gliders in there, a uh, couch. It, it's an opportunity if because uh, we, we encourage everyone to bring their children. And we have a nursery, and if you want to put them in the nursery, that's great. Please do that. Uh, if you have newborn or if you have toddlers that don't like to be a- away from you, that's fine too. Bring them in the service. We love children. A little noise, never hurt anybody. But if you need to take them out for some reason, they need to, to play a few minutes, you need to feed a baby, whatever, we've got that cry room in the back. You can keep up with the service as it goes while you're in there. Uh, the TV is currently not in there, so you can still use it, but you won't be able to see the service. You will be able to hear it, though, because we've got the speakers in the foyer. So we just want to let you know that that's available and and almost completely furnished and ready for you. So uh, be aware of that. Our kids' table is changing next Sunday, right? Uh, Instead of K through 5, it's going to be pre-K 4 through 3. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, 4th and 5th graders will still get their own packet of activities to, to uh, go along with the, the service, uh, still the, the um, listening guides, but we will ask them to stay with their parents at this time so we can focus a little more on the younger ones who are beginning to read but will need more help along the way. So that change will happen next week with our kids' table, so be aware of that. Uh, again, the, the cry room is available But what we want you to hear, especially uh, we don't have a lot of parents of young children here this morning, so if you're watching now or later, we want you to know your children are welcome. Families are welcome. We, We want you all, and however you want to split up or not split up your family to worship with us, come on. We're uh, doing our best to make it as uh, enjoyable and as comfortable on you as possible. Uh, Our message this morning is a continuation of our series, A Confident Stand. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's the end of the series. Next week, we will start looking at 1st and 2nd Kings. Uh, Failure and Faithfulness is the title of that series. We'll obviously get into that more as we we move forward. Uh, Celebrations, small celebrations for this week. Honestly, I was not able to focus on anything like that because of everything else that's gone on this week. Um, uh, When we go over our memory verse here in a minute, you will see that I have still not learned it because my week was spent primarily the first couple of days reading through the uh, report of Guidepost Solutions and uh, the Sexual Abuse Task Force for the Southern Baptist Convention, 288 pages of report, and I read every page uh, to see what had gone on, and it's crushing. Uh, it is, um, well, it's, it, it, there is a reckoning that must happen, and it will be difficult and painful and ugly, and as I said in my statement on Facebook and uh, other social media, that it may be the end, 
financially of the Southern Baptist Convention because of the things that were done in the past. Um, and if so, then so be it. That's just, we are reaping what we have sown. Maybe God will be gracious if we as a convention of churches repent and do things differently moving forward, but we will see. I'll talk about a little bit more of that in the, in the message this morning uh, uh, because it very timely message for what was going on this week. And then uh, you had the shooting in Uvalde, uh, following the shooting at the church in California, following the shooting in Buffalo. So I was watching the news this week and trying to keep up with all that was going on there. And celebration just kind of has turned into lament. Lament for our country, lament for our convention. Uh, so many things are bad right now. Yes, we can sing joyfully and, and, and full-throated of the goodness of God, even in all of this, but we can't move past the reality and say, well, everything's fine, God is good. Well, God is good, but not everything is fine. And if we go to, I mean, we have a book in the Bible, Lamentations, Lament. Lamentations. We have an entire book about lamenting. God is good, yes, but there is a time to lament. There is a time to mourn. Uh, uh, we're told that in Ecclesiastes. So now is a time to mourn uh, what's going on. Not just to mourn, though, and say, whoa, I'm glad we got the mourning over with. We can move on because there's a response that's needed on all these things. And we pray the Lord guides and we will listen as we move forward. Our memory verse this morning, I don't know what the next slide is. Oh yeah, uh, the, the passage this morning is dealing with troublemakers. For 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. But first, let's say our memory verse together with even more blanks. So I hope you have your cheat sheet, because I'm using it. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17. I commit to you that this week I will memorize this verse. Why don't you commit with me to do that as well? We will memorize this verse, and next week, since we're introducing a new verse, we're probably going to bring this one back to practice one more time. No more blanks. I think we'll leave it there just, just for the little helps, but we'll come back to this verse. Deal with troublemakers. The, I struggled with this passage this week. Uh, I began with the idea that uh, what it was talking about was the, the actual bulk of the verses, verses uh, 7 through, oh, 7 through 13, probably, talking about this situation in the church in Thessalonica. And so I came to it beginning there and, and, and thinking, okay, so what, are, what is he talking about? What is the situation in Thessalonica? And, and that's, that's what I need to preach on this morning. And then as I looked at it, the actual situation, just 
at, uh, at face value doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we experience in the church in the 20th century, uh, 21st century actually now. There, there's, there, there could be, and, and there may be churches, and I'm sure there are churches around the world who deal with something like this, but in our particular case, it's not. So then I began thinking, all right, what is the application then? What's the principle that we can take from this passage? And I, I got to a principle, and we're going to talk about that this morning because I think it is a good principle. I think it is a way to apply the passage. But then as I read the passage and, and struggled with it all the way up through Saturday, but why is Paul writing? Is he instructing about the situation? Is he telling them how to deal or telling, telling them about the situation, the, 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 about the problems that are in the church and, and focusing on that? Or is he, in fact, telling them how to deal with the situation? And as you should, you, you go to the passage and where are the commands? Where are the imperatives? And the imperatives are at the end of the passage and there's no imperative at the beginning, but he says, now we command you. So even, that's not, even though that's not in the imperative, uh, uh, an imperative verb, it, well, it's a command, right? So... Obviously, it carries that weight. And in those verses, those passages, Paul is not explaining why what's going on is bad, though he does that. He's telling them how to deal with it in the situation. So that's where we come down this morning. That's why the title is Deal with Troublemakers. Now, in dealing with troublemakers, there must be church discipline. Jesus talks about church discipline. Matthew 11, I think, maybe. Probably have the chapter wrong, but I think that's where it is. Jesus talks about what to do with, with folks that are causing problems in the church. One goes. Two or three leaders go. And if, that, if they don't change, you remove them from the church. There's some sort of action that takes place. Now, in our context today, as a, as as Baptist churches, we would vote them out of membership. As a matter of fact, our Constitution calls for it. We have a section on church discipline in our Constitution. The Baptist Faith and Message, uh, I believe, deals with that some. Jesus talks about church discipline. Paul talks about church discipline a whole bunch. Corinthians, he tells them, you've got a guy that's doing something even the, even the pagans don't do. Kick him out. Don't allow that sort of sin, that blatant sin in your church. What we understand and what we know intuitively is that it takes a confident stand on Scripture in Christ in order to perform church discipline. It's not easy. And, and if you don't believe me, just look at the number of churches that don't do it when there is something that is blatantly wrong. When there are problems that the church just will not address because, well, fill in the blank. There are a lot of reasons. Now, it's interesting, those same churches have no problem calling a special meeting to fire a pastor if they think there's a problem. But if you, lose a, if you try to remove a member, well, suddenly that's, ee, we don't do that. Yeah, biblically, 
we do. But this morning, Paul is not talking about what we would consider a a church vote of removal, not what Jesus talked about. There are a number of different forms of church discipline in Scripture, and this is one of them. Paul gives us the, the way to go about it, the beginning and the end, and then a lot in the middle on, to, uh, to help us understand what was going on. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busybodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul spends a lot of time on, on the situation, but as I said, the, the command to the church, the, the discipline that must take place is addressed at the beginning, and just in case the readers didn't get it, uh, he addresses it at the end and fills it out a little bit more. The com- command in verse 6 is what we see first. And the way Paul phrases this, frames it, is it is both a command from him and from Jesus. Again, Jesus talked about church discipline. Paul knew about Jesus' teachings on church discipline. This command, we command you, the, the, the leaders of the church, the missionaries that came in, the, the, uh, the one who has taught them, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not leaving it up to, there are times when Paul will say, this is from me, not the Lord. This is not one of those times. This is Paul saying, from me and from the Lord, we command you. We tell you to do this. That in the name of the Lord, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, gives it the, uh, the oomph that Paul thinks it might need. Although Paul has no problem saying, I'm telling you to do this too. He, he, he doesn't have an issue with that at all. But he's letting them know this is, this is from Jesus as well. But it also allows them to say, this is what we stand on. The church can say to these idle meddlers that we're going to talk about, we are doing this because Jesus said to, because Paul said to, we 2,000 years later would say because scripture says to in multiple places to deal with the troublemakers. And our confidence, our ability to make a confident stand, and, and this, is where, uh, this is where I was really struggling with the passage this morning. It, it, if I was just going to teach on 
what was going on about uh, people who were being helped by the church in some way, not doing anything to work to, uh, to make that provision less or, or easier, then I was going to miss the theme of what I believe is the, what I believe is the theme of, the, of Second Thessalonians, this confident stand. But if this is the church having to make a hard decision to discipline those who are causing problems, then we know as a church we have to have something to stand on besides an opinion or a feeling or an emotion. We stand on Scripture. And that confident stand comes from Jesus and His Word, just like everything we've talked about through Second and even First Thessalonians. Honestly, every time we get up and we study God's Word, we stand on Him and we stand on Scripture. So this is a command from Jesus and Paul, and it is shunning as church discipline. Now, when I think of shunning, I think of the Amish. I don't know how familiar y'all are with the Amish, but they like to shun if you, you know, use a telephone or, use or, or own a telephone or that sort of thing. They, that is one of the ways that they do church discipline is shunning. That's basically what Paul is talking about here. That's the kind of thing he is, he is uh, uh, describing when he says, keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition or the teaching received from us. Notice what he is not doing here. In this particular case, he is not telling the church leaders as Jesus did in, in the situation he was talking about. He's not telling the church leaders, y'all do this to remove the person from the fellowship or to deal with the problem. He is telling the church that it is the responsibility of the individual church members to do this. It is our responsibility to stand against this sort of divisiveness in the church. This is for you to do to the idle meddlers. And this is, a, this is protection for the church. This is, the, the leaders don't know everything that goes on, all the conversations, all the talk, all of the slander. But church members do. They hear it. It is the responsibility of the church members to stand against that, to shun the person who is doing that. What we see is that we need to do this in our church, but this message could not have been more timely because we need to do this as a Southern Baptist Convention. This week, the report that came out included, a couple of days later, a list of abusers over the last 20 years or so. These people had all either been convicted or credibly accused, and there's a lot of other details that go into it. Often, they were credibly accused in a church, accused credibly enough that they were fired. They just didn't bother telling the next church that they went to that that's why they were fired. So they go to the next church, and abuse again. And sometimes it took two, three, or four churches for someone to finally call the police because ministers are mandatory reporters, and that person would be arrested, and we would learn about all the other abuse that took on. 
or that, 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 that all the abuse, other abuse that, that happened. What we need to do as a convention is shun these. In this case, in the case of this list, there are, I believe, over 700 names over 20 years. 700 names of people that were uh, convicted or credibly accused of abuse. And sometimes they were shunned. Sometimes they were fired. But way too often they weren't. This is the kind of thing, and more has to happen than just shunning. But at the very least, it should be that. That we no longer participate. We no longer allow people who have abused to take part in our convention and our churches. This morning, right now, in one of our largest Southern Baptist churches, a man who was fired from being president of one of our seminaries because he covered up abuse, because he further abused, not physically, but emotionally and psychologically, survivors of abuse, is preaching in one of our Southern Baptist churches, one of our largest Southern Baptist churches right now. That should not be. He should not be in a pulpit anywhere. He has disqualified himself because of the things he has done. Credibly accused. He was fired from his position. And yet this morning he preaches in a pulpit. Shunning is a form of, a, of church discipline that we need to do. And many, many, I would say most churches don't. And Paul tells us why we shun them. Because every brother or sister who is idle does not live according to the tradition received from us. Does not live according to the teaching, the commands. Idle meddlers don't obey scriptures. That's the crux of it. Those who are troublemakers, those idle meddlers that they're talking about, are not obeying scripture. So they should be shunned because of their disobedience to scripture. Maybe there are other reasons, certainly, but what Paul is saying is they aren't doing what Jesus said do, so shun them, put them out because of their actions. Because if they don't obey Scripture, they will cause problems in the church, and that's what we're going to see next. The reason for... Um, the, the, the reason for dealing with troublemakers, verses 7 through 11. He describes the situation going on in the church in Thessalonica. He tells them uh, the things that he had already taught them. They'd already talked about this. As a matter of fact, if you remember in 1 Thessalonians, he, he kind of breezes across this whole problem of idle meddlers. He doesn't get into great detail, but apparently that wasn't enough the idle meddlers continued to cause problems in the church, apparently getting worse. So now he has to write a letter with even more forceful language and a stronger command on how to deal with them. Now, what does an idle meddler do? In this case, the, the, we translate the word idle. They are idle, meaning they are not doing the things they're supposed to do. That's broadly what it what it means. Specifically in their context, he is probably talking about some church members who were poor 
and were receiving help either from the church or from some uh, wealthier church members or from maybe even, well, there wasn't government help back then, uh, but something like that. And they were living off of that without any, uh, without any work to help uh, what word am I looking for? Help alleviate? No, that's not the word I want. To take up some of the slack. Basically to say, say, yeah, I can't make enough, but I can make something. I can, I can put forth the effort here so that I am not such a burden on the church, so that the burden, uh, so that the church can help those who are less able than I am. That was, that was probably the context it was not unheard of for the churches to do that. There were, there were all sorts of situations where wealthy people took care, because there weren't government programs, wealthy people took care of poor people just as kind of uh, their ministry, so to speak. And Paul is saying, these people that are living off of that, but not putting forth any effort at all, get rid of them. That's, that's how big a deal this was. Now, that's why I struggled this week. I'm like, we don't have that particular situation in our church. It's just, it's not the way we function at the moment. Could that happen someday? And it has happened at times when we help somebody financially and we find out that that help was squandered or not, uh, there was no uh, progress made with that help and maybe we try again and after a while we say, well, we just, we can't anymore because you're not using it as you should. But it's not... It's not a common thing in our church. So, so that's the, the struggle here is, how does this apply to our church? Well, in their context, that's what it was. And, and Paul tells them, and, and, and in these verses 7 through 11, he shows them and teaches them, he tells them, I've done it before, to, to work hard and not be a burden. Now, if we're not careful, then we say, well, see, churches shouldn't pay pastors. They should all work uh, a second job to, to uh, get their salary, and churches don't. Well, Paul, Paul covers that in other places, and here he, he only expects, he says, I worked so I didn't have to be a burden on you. He says in other places, I, I worked so that your money would not try to convince me or sway me to do something I shouldn't do. I was completely independent of you, so I could tell you the truth. And some preachers are fine just telling the truth and letting the chips fall. He says, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't have. And as a matter of fact, once he has left a new church, a new church plant, he did expect that church then to support him as he went and started other churches. So this is not a, a lifelong Paul never received support from churches. He just didn't do it right then at that new church plant. Later on, he expects it. So that's their context. That's what Paul is saying for them. And they understood the message and they got it. In our context, though, it looks more like those that don't work or contribute to the church but cause problems. These are the ones that aren't working, aren't helping, aren't serving, but complain about what's going on in the church and usually complain the loudest. This would be those in the church who don't give financially to the general fund of the church, but then are the loudest to complain about how the money's being spent or how there isn't enough money to spend it the way we're spending. That's the lesson for us today. That's the application for us today. Now, this is where I was 
at one point during the week too, thinking, all right, this is what I'm preaching on this whole time. But that's not Paul's emphasis. That is our application, and he makes it clear in this next phrase, this next verse, when he says these, they, aren't, uh, they are busy bodies, or they're, they're not busy, but busy bodies. They're not doing the things that are necessary. They're, they're doing things, but they're not doing anything that's helpful or good. They're doing things that cause problems. So he's making that clear, and he is instructing as well, because Paul's good at what he writes. When he talks about these things, when he, when he talks about people that are doing things, he is also instructing those people as he talks to someone else about those people. The guy was smart. So they, he says they're not busy, they're just busybodies. And every one of us here knows what that means. And, and every one of them there, it's the same sort of pun in Greek. He uses a slightly, obviously, a different word, but it, it comes across the same way. He, he says they're, they're, not, they're not doing what they, they're doing stuff, but they're not doing anything any good. I've had this conversation with uh, a couple of church members in the past because we, we see it, we've seen it, we know it works this way. It's amazing that if you're busy about the work of the church, how you don't have time to be a busybody causing problems in the church. If you're doing the ministry, if you're serving Jesus, it's hard to keep looking at what everybody else is doing when your uh, hand is on the plow and your eyes are focused on the, 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 the row you're cutting. And Paul says, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're busy doing things, but what they're doing isn't good or helpful. So we could stop here, and, and I could focus on that, but Paul doesn't stop. He describes the, the situation to them. He, he, he tells them what they already know. He reminds them of the things he has already taught them, so they've got a good idea of what's going on. But then he provides the fix in verses 12 through 13. Here is where he commands them again he repeats what he says in verses uh, in verse 6 he tells them one more time now we command and exhort again these are not imperatives they're not imperative verbs but we know what command means and exhort such people by the lord jesus christ to work quietly and provide for themselves but as for you brothers and sisters do not grow weary in doing good the fix. Notice that the fix is not the discipline. The discipline comes if the fix doesn't happen. See, the fix is, verse 13, you can and should change. Now we command and exhort such people, the idle meddlers, the busy bodies, but not the busy ones. We command the ones who are causing problems to change, to do something different. The truth is, you know who you are. You know when you contribute to the work of the church and when you don't. And you know when you contribute to the problems of the church by being a busy body and not busy. And you know when you don't. And Paul says to them, 
Now he's as close to directing the troublemakers as he comes in this passage. Now we, he doesn't even talk to them directly. He doesn't say, y'all. It says, we command such people, should they happen to exist. Now we command and exhort them to change. First, to work quietly and provide for themselves. To hush and contribute to the work. Now, in their situation, again, in their context, he is telling them, find whatever job you can, work to support yourself as best you can, and that way you won't be idle and causing problems. In our context today, work on the ministry of the church and quit tearing down the church. Quit causing trouble. Hush and contribute to the work. See, he, he, he understands, Paul understands, and we understand that the ones who are working and giving, that usually, they usually aren't the ones that are causing the problems. It's not always the case. That, that, that's true. But it is extremely rare that the ones who are giving and working are the ones that cause the problems. It's the ones who aren't that usually cause the problems. And, and to be honest, when someone who is working and giving sees a problem that they bring up, it carries a lot more weight to leadership to hear it from them than to hear it from someone who has contributed little or nothing to the work of the ministry. So Paul tells them, hush and contribute to the work. This is the fix. You have an opportunity to do things differently. And he says to the rest of you, keep going. Keep doing the things you're doing. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. There's a very real chance we get tired of doing the right thing all the time. And that's just the way it is. We grow weary of doing good. We, we grow weary of having to put up with the troublemakers, the problems in a church. And Paul says, don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't check out too soon. Uh, back when I gave you our, my, my state of the church message back in January, I, I told you at a year and a half, two and a half years of, of being here, there aren't too many people that would have been shocked if we had up and, and gone. As a matter of fact, uh, this morning, Etta and I were talking about, there was a, uh, a pastor in Texas that, that contacted me around that time to talk about, wanted to talk to me about becoming his executive pastor at this church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And at the time, we had no inclination that God was leading us away. We, we weren't looking for somewhere to go. We weren't planning on it. We weren't even really discussing it because God had not shown us anything. But then suddenly, we're thinking, is God showing us this? Is this, is this, is this time? And while it would have been painful and we wouldn't have wanted to, there were some days where yeah, sounds like a good deal. 
never came to anything. He never, he got back to me once or twice, but it never moved beyond that. And, and I'm glad because the truth is in that moment, I was weary. And the opportunity to go to something different, not better necessarily, I know the church well, I know the pastor well, it would have, it would have had its own different types of issues for me to be on staff at that church. But still, the opportunity to get to quit was attractive. Paul knows that. Paul knows that church members get tired of fighting against the mess that can happen among church members. You get tired of hearing it. You get tired of walking away. You get tired of trying to love the person anyway, only to to have that relationship used to try to coerce you to believe something or to do something that you wouldn't want to do it gets weary and Paul says I get it I know I've been beaten and stuff keep doing good keep going and that's the fix I, I wish we could stop there. I wish Paul could stop there. I wish Paul had stopped there and said, this is all you need. And it could be the end. If those idle meddlers would hush and contribute to the work and the rest of the church keep doing what they're doing, it would end there. But Paul knew. Verses 14, we see the purpose of discipline. We see the purpose of dealing with troublemakers. We might think that the purpose of dealing with troublemakers is to get rid of them. That's not the purpose. The purpose is, well, what he says here. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of the person Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There's a lot in this passage that we could discuss, and we're going to try to get to as much of it as we can. First thing he says, the the purpose, well, obey the instruction. Now, the, the question here. Well, first of all, if we obey the instruction, we can take a confident stand, right? We take our stand on Jesus and his word. So when we make a decision to follow Jesus and his word, we can be confident in that. The whole uh, parable that Jesus gave when he said, before you can worry about the uh, speck in your brother's eye, worry about the plank in your own, that's absolutely true. Absolutely. That's why we base everything we do, or we should, on Jesus and Scripture. Because if we have, then we have taken care of the plank in our own eyes, so we can deal with the speck in someone else's. It is our responsibility as a church to deal with problems in the church and problem people. So obey the instruction, and if you do, you can take this confident stand. Now, there's a question here. I have the question. When he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, what instruction is he talking about? Because he's given a couple. 
the other imperatives in the passage don't really, uh, don't really work for, for, for him to be referring to those. Uh, the other imperatives are back in chapter 2 when he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions. And, and maybe that's the instruction he's talking about, because that would, that would work, but that just seems a little far back. Then you move forward, and you have the command to the brothers and sisters to keep away from the brothers. You also have uh, to keep away from the idle meddlers. Then you have the command in verse 12 to change. So, so what command is he talking about? When he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction, who is he talking to? Is he talking to the meddler who won't hush and work? Or is he talking to the church members who won't shun the idle meddler? That's the question that that, that passage leads us to ask. That phrase leads us to ask. Is he talking to the meddlers or is he talking to the church, church members who won't shun him or her? I think it's both. Because those that won't shun the idle meddler are usually in on the idle meddling. Or they eventually get convinced to take part in the idle meddling over time. I think we can all think of situations where that has happened. And that's what he's talking about because that's why it covers both. That's why I said earlier that to shun the idle meddler is a form of protection of the church. When we shun the idle meddler, it removes any opportunity for that negative influence to take effect, to have to have an effect. You, 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 can't, you, you can't respond to what you're not hearing. And Paul knows that. So if anyone, he says, does not obey our instruction, whether it is to uh, stop the idle meddling or to shun the idle meddler, you shun them all. And you shame them. Now we're not we're not as big a shame culture as we used to be, and we're certainly not as big a shame culture as the church in Thessalonica was. Shame was a huge deal for them. And, and we used to be. I, I remember my grandmother would say regularly to me, yo, Michael, be ashamed. Now, most of the time she meant that slightly joking, because usually I was joking when I did it. Uh, but that was because it was a big deal to be ashamed. And unfortunately today, it's, it's not as big a deal. Yet that is what Paul is saying. Any church member who has to be ignored because of the trouble they are causing in the church should be ashamed that they have put themselves in that position. And Paul says, shame them. But shame them to bring change. And this is probably the hardest part. It's a lot easier to just push aside and wash your hands and be done. But he does not allow us to do that. Shame to bring change. Yet don't consider him as an enemy. But warn him as a brother. We are to pray for change and reconciliation. And here's the hardest part of the passage. I think we can steel ourselves up 
to stand firm, to take a confident stand on the commands of Paul and Jesus to do the shaming, to do the shunning, to put out a troublemaker. But when it comes to, in our hearts and minds, maintaining the opportunity for reconciliation and repentance and restoration and change, that's the hard part. Well, there are some major trust issues, obviously, that have to be overcome there. Because we've got to figure out, can that person be trusted? Time and again, we find that that person can no longer be trusted. And that's, that's known. I mean, not everyone will change because of the shame. Uh, they're going to say that they're misunderstood, or they've been lied about, or they didn't mean it that way. Or that person just is trying to stir something up. Or that person is trying to hide something of the one that's making the accusation. There's always an excuse. And and some people are going to live in those excuses no matter what. And there's just nothing we can do. We can pray. We can hope that they will change. But in the meantime, they should be disciplined and shunned. But restoration is what Jesus wants. Because no matter, no matter how closely we align ourselves with Scripture when we do this, it's going to hurt. Discipline always hurts. It's the nature of it. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, our parents might have said. It always hurts. And there's always damage. Uh, You've you've got the damage that led up to the discipline. You have the continued damage of the ones who will not be ashamed of what they've done and just continue to do the damage. It is never fun and it doesn't always work out well. But... If we are following the commands of Jesus as a church, the Bible is clear that if we're putting on the armor, then those fiery darts that would be against us, that would bring us down, that would damage or kill the church, will not succeed. Why? Because we are standing confident on Jesus and Scripture. And the devil cannot beat that. He can't use people to beat that. Remember, in the, the wilderness, the devil tried to beat Jesus one-on-one. And how did Jesus beat him? Scripture. Jesus stood confidently on the Word of God. Yes, Jesus was the Word of God, I know. But he stood confidently. He didn't... Jesus never said, Satan... Don't you know I'm the Son of God? You're not going to win in this. I'm Jesus. He came back with Scripture every time. If we come back with Scripture, Jesus will restore. If we come back with Scripture, Jesus will protect. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus. Jesus wants restoration. It's it's what Jesus does. 
I mean, that's, that's like what he came for, to restore our relationship with God. Sin had damaged, sin, not just damaged, sin had broken our relationship. Y'all, that's, that's, that's seen right here in this passage. Sin has broken the relationship in the church. But when Jesus shows up and people follow Jesus, the relationship can heal. It's the same thing Jesus does for a lost person. Our relationship with God was broken, severed for eternity because of sin. But Jesus restores that relationship. When we repent of our sins, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we take to heart a passage like Romans 6.23 that tells us about our sin, that the wages of sin is death, that who we are is sinners, enemies of God. The wages of sin is death. When we recognize that and we realize that we've been shunned by God, I mean, that's, that's what it is. He has turned his back on us as sinners. He will not have anything to do with us. We will never have a relationship with him because of our sin. He provides a gift. He provides a means of resurre- uh, restoration. The wages of sin is death. You can go ahead to the next slide, Pat. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The opportunity, the fix that I talked about this morning, the fix for the problems, the the, the fix for the healing, the fix for the broken relationship is a gift of God, eternal life that cancels the debt of sin, cancels, that, that heals the severing, but it's not just going to happen. No more than the severing of the relationship between the idol meddlers and the church body is just going to happen because it will take something. It will take repentance. It will take faith. It will take Jesus. It takes Jesus to heal a church. It takes Jesus to save a soul. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must respond. We must respond in faith to Jesus Christ to be saved from our sins. Church, in order to move on, in order to uh, overcome the, the troublemakers that have arisen, are here, and will arise again, we must respond. And we pray that the idle meddlers will respond as well. And it may be some of the idol meddlers need to trust Jesus as their Savior. They've just never done that. They've never... Now, Paul calls them brothers and sisters. There are church people who are idol meddlers. There are believers who are idol meddlers. There are also wolves in among the sheep who are idol meddlers. And we need to trust Jesus with all of them. This morning, what is your decision? What is your next step? Maybe you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You, you've got that next step to take. You, you understand that there's a severing of that relationship. You've never had a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Your sin has done that to you. 
and you want to fix that today, you want to accept Christ, you'll have an opportunity here in a couple of minutes. Maybe you want to follow a decision that you have made in the past in baptism. You've just never gone public. It's never really connected. You've never clenched the nail is how I describe it in our new members class. Or I saw someone describe it, uh, baptism as putting on the wedding ring uh, when you get married. It's, it's that moment when you mark yourself as a follower of Jesus. Maybe this morning your next step is to conform your life to Christ. Maybe you are that idle meddler that needs to be brought back in, that needs to repent and return, to trust Jesus, to stand on his word, and to obey the commands. Maybe you have some other submission in your life that you need to make to God. He's calling you for more. He has set you aside for more. And you need to respond to that. Maybe you'd like to Tell us of your desire to join our church. We've got a, a new members class coming up. Uh, maybe uh, we'll try to do it this next Sunday because I'll be gone a couple after that. So uh, we'll try to do that this Sunday morning during our Connect group time if you want to be a part of that. Whatever your decision is this morning, we're going to take a few minutes here in just a bit to do that. I'll be down front here on the right. Amy will be here on my left. Lee and Kirk are usually in the back, a couple of our deacons, that they would pray with you as well. Maybe you have a decision to make. Maybe you just want to come to the front and pray. Whatever your decision is this morning, I pray that you would do it. I pray that you would respond. I pray that you would, as Paul said, fix it. He didn't use those words. Work quietly. Provide for yourselves. Come to Jesus and change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that none of us are too far gone. Lord, there is no sin from which we can't come back. Lord, if we have never accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can do that this morning, right now, this moment. We can confess our sins Believe on Jesus, and we will be saved that simply. But Lord, if we are idle meddlers, if we have lost sight of our role and responsibility as a member of your church, and we have come against your church in whatever way that might be, whether it's the exact description of Paul here in this passage or an application of it in our modern times or some other way. Lord, we can be restored to you because the sin is against you if it's against your church, but restored to each other as well. God, I pray for that. I pray that you would heal the brokenness that would lead someone to be an idle meddler, a troublemaker in a church. God, we pray for repentance. We pray that you would move in our heart this morning that hears the message of the gospel and says, I've never healed the, the, the severing between me and God, much less anybody else. Lord, I pray for that first step to be a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Salvation by faith alone that you would do that work in their hearts. 
and Lord, in, in so doing, heal so many other relationships. God, we thank you for your word that is often difficult, that is always uncompromising, but also always restorative. God, make us one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you'd like some prayer, now's your time to, to come and be a part of that and ask for it. We'd love to talk to you. If you want to comment on Facebook, send us a message, an email about your decision this morning, that'll be fine too. But whatever your decision is, work with God this morning. Work with God. Listen to him and do what he says as we stand and as we sing. Worship him this morning.